Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Strecker. It's very easy when you're looking at the past, when you're looking at people who are not like ourselves, who act in different ways, who know different things, to make alien metaphors. And making alien metaphors when you're talking about the past is, I think, easy, but it's also trite, and it's very, very problematic, and and I'm going to do it anyway, because I think in this case, it really sort of drives home the scope of what I wanted to talk about today. Imagine for a moment that we found life on Mars. Now, imagine that we went to war with the life on Mars, and that we were suddenly involved with several large, difficult space battles that sometimes took years to complete. Now imagine if news began to circulate on Earth that there were, against all probability, other humans in the solar system, and that there was a lost human colony hanging out in the asteroid belt. And not only that, this lost human colony, they had high-tech weaponry, they had lasers, teleportation, faster-than-light travel, all of it, and that a super-advanced civilization was just beyond our enemy's borders on the other side of them. A super-advanced civilization that was a lot like us. People believed something kind of like that once, back in the Middle Ages, with the legends of Prester John, a mythical Christian king who, some believed, wrongly, ruled a powerful kingdom in the unknown East. And legends about Prester John, no one knows exactly where they came from, uh, how they originated, but one of the earliest accounts of Prester John is from a German chronicler named Otto of Freising, who wrote about the supposed king in 1145. This guy, Otto, his account gives us a nice summation of the core of the myth. The idea is that there's Europe, then there's various Muslim kingdoms, and out there beyond the Muslim kingdoms, who lots of Europe is doing crusades at, there's a Christian king whose domain is way out in the east, who's coming at the Muslim kingdoms from the other side. Here's Otto of Friesing's account. Quote, we also saw that there was at the time the aforesaid bishop of Jabala in Syria. He said indeed that not many years since, one John, a king and priest living in the Far East, beyond Persia and Armenia, and who, with his people, is a Christian, but an historian, had warred upon the so-called Samarids, the brother kings of the Medes and the Persians. John also attacked Abactinus, the capital of their kingdom. When the aforesaid kings advanced upon him with the force of Persians, Medes, and Assyrians, a three-day struggle ensued, since both sides were willing to die rather than to flee. At length, Prester John, so he is usually called, put the Persians to flight and emerged from the dreadful slaughter as victor. The bishop said that the aforesaid John moved his army to aid the Church of Jerusalem, but that when he came to the Tigris and was unable to take his army across it by any means, he turned aside to the north, where he had been informed that the stream was frozen solid during the winter. Unquote. A few things. This account features an unknown Eastern Christian king fighting Muslims and trying to get to Jerusalem, just like the European Christians. Isn't it convenient that other Christians have the same goal as they do, 
completely independently. That is a wonderful little piece of propaganda there. Also, I do not think that the Tigris freezes in the winter, what with it being in Iraq and all. But Otto of Freezing's account is fairly normal compared to what would come later. In Otto of Freezing's account, Prester John is just a distant monarch who also happens to be a priest in a far-off land, and that's pretty much it. The legend, though, is about to get a whole lot more over-the-top and bizarre. Later in the 1100s, in 1165, the Byzantine emperor, Manuel I Komnenos, got a letter that was supposedly from Prester John. And that document is one of the greatest historical fabrications of all time. The letter is addressed from one king to another, but there's a strong air of condescension about it. The whole tone of the letter is fairly arrogant, with quote-unquote Prester John going on about how awesome he and his kingdoms are. The letter writer emphasizes riches, religious piety, and how fabulous all the features of his domain are, and the utter fabulousness of his domain. And we're not just talking about a place that has lots of wheat or nice wine grapes or earthly riches like that. We're talking about some serious fantasy novel type stuff. Here is the part of the letter addressed to the Byzantine emperor, where the supposed eastern monarch lists off all of the animals that live in his kingdom. Quote, Our land is the home of elephants, dromedaries, camels, crocodiles, metaconarium, camatenus, tensivetes, wild asses, white and red lions, white bears, white merules, crickets, griffins, tigers, lamias, hyenas, wild oxen and wild men, men with horns, one-eyed men with eyes before and behind, centaurs, fawns, satyrs, pygmies, forty L-hide giants, cyclopses, and similar women. It is the home, too, of the phoenix and of nearly all living animals. We have some people subject to us who feed on the flesh of men and of prematurely born animals and who never fear death. When any of these people die, their friends and relations eat him ravenously, for they regard it as a main duty to munch human flesh. So you have centaurs and cannibals and giants living there. And my favorite thing about that is the crickets. There are crickets right in there with lamias and cyclopses. Uh, the letter goes on to talk about how the land of Prester John is literally flowing with milk and honey. And it's filled with gems of all kinds and other different wonders. There's also a bit where the letter writer, again claiming to be Prester John, describes how he travels and the fancy crosses that his army uses instead of battle standards. And the letter writer is using the word we in the sense of the royal we because they're pretending to be a monarch. But here it is. Quote, when we go to war, we have fourteen golden and bejeweled crosses borne before us instead of banners. Each of these crosses is followed by ten thousand horsemen and one hundred thousand foot soldiers fully armed, without reckoning those in charge of the luggage and provision. When we ride abroad plainly, we have a wooden, unadorned cross without gold or gems upon it, borne before us in order that we meditate on the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ." 
also a golden bowl filled with earth to remind us that whence we sprung and that to which we must return. But besides these there is born a silver bowl full of gold as a token to all that we are the Lord of Lords. To a modern reader, all this talk of bejeweled crosses, giant armies, and fantasy animals is pretty transparently a hoax, and I'd like to believe that in 1165, plenty of learned people also realized that such a land was obviously fake. One of my favorite little details, though, in this Prester John letter is in the Litany of Wonders, the writer also describes this, quote, At the foot of Mount Olympus bubbles up a spring which changes its flavor hour by hour, night and day, and the spring is scarcely three days' journey from paradise, out of which Adam was driven. If any one has tasted thrice of that fountain, from that day he will feel no fatigue, but will, as long as he lives, be a man of thirty years. Unquote. And that right there is the first known written instance of the Fountain of Youth, right next to the Garden of Eden and Mount Olympus, apparently. So, this was all happening in the exotic, unknown, mythical East, beyond even the Muslim kingdoms or the various steppe peoples. And when one well-known European actually went there and wrote about Asia, he attempted to explain away the Prester John myth. Marco Polo was wandering around Asia with his dad and uncle, and he identified Prester John as not a famed priest-king, but as a local warlord, wrote Polo in his travels. Quote, the Tartars were actually a tributary to a great lord who was called in their language Ung Khan, which simply means great lord. This was that Prester John of whose empire all the world speaks. Unquote. And in Polo's account, Prester John, rather Ung Khan, is not a priest-king with a magnificent land filled with jewels and crosses and centaurs. In Polo's account, he's a bad guy who doesn't agree to a diplomatic marriage with one of Genghis Khan's relatives. Genghis Khan proposed an alliance with Ung, and after getting rebuffed, one does not say no to Genghis Khan, Genghis moved on in, defeated Ung Khan, and killed him, killing the supposed Prester John. And it's really easy to look at this story and just assume that folks who were talking about Prester John were actually talking about the Mongols. Uh, a lot of the sources I read about this said that medieval Europeans, they were mistaking the Mongols for distant Christian kingdoms. After all, doesn't John kind of sound like Khan? European Christians were hoping that on the other side of the Muslim kingdoms, there was a Christian kingdom that they'd never heard of, who would swoop in from the east and make war on the Muslims from the other side. And some Mongol groups did include Christians, particularly the eastern Nestorians. And it's possible that if a European had heard of a group of Mongols that included some Christians, they wouldn't assume that that Mongolian group had religious diversity. They would just assume that the whole group, the whole nation, and the leader was also a Christian like they were. However, we don't have any kind of solid evidence to say that the Mongols were the specific inspiration for the Prester John myth. It's a very nice, tidy explanation. After all, they were a military force that the Muslim kingdoms had to contend with from the east. But we can't say for sure that's how it played out. 
Later on, in the 1400s and 1500s, the Prester John legend would place his kingdom in Ethiopia, because I suppose one area of the map left unexplored by Europeans is just as good as another. Uh, In 1520, Portugal sent a mission to what was then called Abyssinia, looking for the mythical king, or his son, or his grandson, or who knows, maybe the same guy who lived for a long time because he had the fountain of youth. When the Portuguese got there, though, they demanded that the Ethiopians take them to Prester John. But there was no Prester John for them to be taken to. As the world became more and more known and interconnected, the legend faded away. But my favorite thing about this story is, that letter that the Byzantine emperor got in 1145, we still have no idea who wrote that. None. Someone back in the 12th century decided to prank one of the most powerful men on earth and send them an arrogant letter bragging about centaurs, jewels, and magical fountains. I would have loved to have been in the room when that thing was read and seen Manuel I's Komnenos reaction, and I'd like to think that whoever wrote that famous missive, claiming to be from a mysterious magical king, well, I'd like to think that they laughed about it for the rest of their life. We have related links for all shows at interestingtimespodcast.com. We're also an ad-free podcast. Uh, We are entirely supported by our Patreon supporters. Go to interestingtimespodcast.com, click on Support IT on Patreon, and sign up to be a supporter. Please do that. We're on iTunes. Give us a rating. Give us a review. We're also on Stitcher. We're on X-Ray FM. 91.1 and 107.1 in Portland, Oregon on Thursdays at 9 and 9.30 and 11 and 11.30. So you can listen to uh, the show on the actual radio. And I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening.